Welcome to MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Lowe. Do you favor wines with a peppery taste? If you do, it's probably because of the presence of the substance called rotundone in the grapes. Rotundone can also be found in black pepper and other herbs like marjoram and oregano. To determine whether people can either smell or taste the peppery influence in these wines and whether those who detect it like it, Dr. Jessica Gaby, an assistant professor of psychology, conducted a study with colleagues when she was at Penn State University. She was doing her postdoc at the time. The study was published in August 2020 in the journal Nutrients. We'll take a sip after this. Here are some of the headlines making news at mtsunews.com, the university's news and information website. Journalists from MTSU's College of Media and Entertainment joined their media colleagues across the country on Election Night 2020, providing live local coverage of the 2020 vote and for the first time simulcasting CBS affiliate News Channel 5's national election coverage. Viewers were able to follow the election on two university stations November 3rd as students and professors from the School of Journalism and Strategic Media and the Department of Media Arts covered the evening on MTSU's educational resource channel True Blue TV and the student-run TV station MT10. MT10 coverage, which began at 7 p.m., featured the News Channel 5 simulcast, live interviews with MTSU scholars and other guests, national election coverage from the college programming streaming service Cheddar U, and two 30-minute MT10 news election specials. On True Blue TV, the students of Middle Tennessee News presented a 9 p.m. special with election night results from every level, including local races in Rutherford and six adjoining counties. And leaders with MTSU and the 118th Wing of the Tennessee Air National Guard signed an agreement on November 3rd at MTSU to collaborate in several areas, notably in research of unmanned aircraft systems operations and computer science. The Memorandum of Understanding also also calls upon both entities to collaborative training and research initiatives. The mission of the 118th Wing, which is based in Nashville, is to provide the U.S. Air Force with persistent intelligence, surveillance, reconnaissance, and combat capability, as well as support in Tennessee during times of emergency. For MTSU News at any time, go to mtsunews.com. Jessica, welcome. Thank you for being with us. Thanks for having me. What kind of grapes contain Rotundo? Um, so the main grapes that contain Rotundo are Syrah grapes, trees to produce um, Australian Syrahs, and then Noiré grapes, which are a hybrid grape that happens to grow well in Pennsylvania, which is where the study was conducted. Now, some people cannot detect Rotundone in wine by sense of smell. Why is that the case? Well, Humans have about 350 different olfactory receptors in the nose, um, and the assortment of receptors that you have is actually genetically determined. So the way that the sense of smell works really briefly is each receptor is tuned to a different molecule or class of molecules, and when you smell an olfactory um, stimulus, so when you smell an odor, it's made up of a bunch of different types of molecules, and it's the pattern of which receptors are activated and how strongly they're activated that helps us to decode what it is that we're smelling. So because those receptors are genetically encoded, um, each individual has a slightly different assortment of which molecules they can detect. And retendone happens to be, uh, seems to be perceived by a class of molecules that 
varies in the population. So some people might have the receptor to detect it and some people might not. Yeah. You set out to determine the ability to detect rotundone in wine by sniffing it and tasting it and then seeing if there was any difference and to determine the extent to which people liked wines with rotundone in them. What was your methodology? So we used a couple of different approaches to look at this. We used uh, a triangle task to, to find a detection threshold. That's how much rotundone has to be added to a wine before you notice a peppery flavor. Um, and then we used a rejection threshold to say, um, how much rotundone can we add before people start to dislike this wine? Um, or really b before people show a preference for this wine, right? So um, with a rejection threshold, you're saying, you're giving people two different samples. One has the rotundone added to it and one doesn't. You're saying, which of these two do you prefer? Um, and what you see is that as you increase the concentration of rotundone in the samples, um, at some point you cross the detection threshold. So you cross the point at which people um, can perceive this peppery note. And for people that like rotundone, they start rejecting the untreated sample, so the sample without it, they say, no, I prefer the one with the rotundone in it. But for people who dislike the, the compound, um, you see that they start to prefer the untreated wine sample, right? They say, oh, I, I don't like that peppery one. Um, and then, of course, for people that can't detect the compound, they don't express a, a reliable preference. And so, they, it turned out that uh, the difference between those who sniffed and those who tasted was not uh, was basically the same. There wasn't a heck of a lot of yeah. difference. Yeah. So interestingly, you know, you do a lot of, of uh, pre-testing when you're setting up a study like this, where you you do what we call bench testing. You make the samples at the level at the concentration of rotundum that you think is going to be effective for your study, and. The whole research team tastes them and says, well, is this really what we thought we were getting? Is this a, do we feel like this is going to be a perceptible level of rotundone? Does it go well with the wine that we chose to add it to? Um, and so as we were working with this compound in the lab, we felt like we were noticing that when we smelled the rotundone, um, we were getting a lot, a lot lower perception of the intensity of the compound than when we tasted the wine that had the rotundone added to it. And so as we were sort of going along in our bench testing, we decided that we wanted to add this additional component to the study where we wanted to look at whether or not people perceived rotundone differently depending on whether they smelled or tasted the wines. Yeah. Um, it turns out there there is no difference. So our <laughs> our perception was was either unique to us or, or you know, uh, a misperception in the first place. But this is one of the few studies, as I understand it, academic studies that have been done on rotundone. There's not a heck of a lot of uh, uh, research in the academic canon on this prior to your study, right? Yeah. So one of the reasons that we did the study the way that we did um, is there's only two other studies that, that explicitly look at the perception of rotundone in red wine. Um, and one of those studies was conducted uh, by the organization that actually isolated rotundum in the first place. So rotundum was isolated very recently, which is one of the reasons there isn't a lot of work done on it. Um, it's really difficult to isolate chemically um, and you have to pull it from the grapes. So in order to get access to that compound, um, we actually at, at Penn State, when I was working on this study, um, the, the people that isolated the compound originally are from the Australian Wine Research Institute. And those are the people that donated the rotundum that we used in this study. So we had to go through this, this 
very long process of, of getting approval to get it from them. And then they had to um, do a lot of chemical manipulation to get enough retundum to send us to put into the wines that we were testing in this study. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's no small feat, which is the other reason that it's difficult, <laughs> to, that, that there's not so much research on it. Yeah. We'll take a break right here. We'll be back in just a minute. This is MTSU on the record. Tennessee's farm families contribute to our state's economy, nutrition, and culture. The Tennessee Century Farms Program at MTSU's Center for Historic Preservation acknowledges farms that have been in the same family at least 100 years. To date, the program has certified more than 1,500 farms. There's no cost to nominate a farm or be part of the program. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. The Middle Tennessee Writing Project is a program that fosters the effective teaching of writing to students in kindergarten through high school. The project hosts annual summer institutes where teacher participants teach and learn from each other effective techniques of teaching writing. In addition, the project sponsors summer writers camps for youngsters. MTSU is one of 185 sites of the National Writing Project and one of only two in Tennessee. For all the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Our guest is Dr. Jessica Gaby. She's an assistant professor of psychology, and we're talking about a study that she and some of her colleagues conducted when she was doing her postdoc at Penn State about the presence of rotundone in wine. Uh, Tell us what the standard triangle test is, if you would. Yes, so in a triangle test, you, you present people with three different samples. Two of the samples are the same and one is different, and you ask them to just tell you which one is different. So it's not a qualitative measure of do you like it more or is it spicier. You're really just saying which one is the odd sample, which one is different than the other two, which one one of these things is not like the other. (laughs) Um, And so when you're doing something like a detection threshold, which is what we did in the first part of this study, um, you start people off at the lowest possible level of added rotundone, and you add it to just one of those three samples. And you say, okay, either smell or taste these three these three wines, which one is different? At really low levels, you see that people are basically guessing at chance, right? So if there's three samples, you have a 33% chance of being right, even if you can't detect the odor. Um, but as you increase the concentration, you see that people start to be able, that the, the, the people who are able to perceive retundone start to be able to pick out reliably which sample it is that the retundone has been added to. And so you look to see where your population goes from being at chance to being reliably able to detect this difference. And that's what tells you where the detection threshold is. That's what tells you where people are able to perceive it, like how much retentment has to be added before people can perceive this compound. How did you decide what kind of wine to use? Well, um, we looked at a bunch of previous research, and I actually consulted with a couple of wine researchers from Penn State's uh, extension program and what you want when you do a study like this is for the wine itself to be very neutral right um you really want to make sure when you are asking people can you detect this compound that what you're getting is the compound itself and not some other weirdness from from the wine right um so we chose to use carlo rossi burgundy it is mass-produced. It is relatively fault-free. It's a pretty neutral wine. You can buy it in bulk. I mean, you can buy it. So we actually, when we when we did this study, we bought like four liter jugs. So basically mm-hmm. gallon jugs of this wine. And we added the return onto each gallon. And that's how we 
that's how we made sure that all of our participants were getting exactly the same assortment of wines because we made one gallon of each of each retendon level for all the participants in our study. So we really wanted to make sure um, that what people were perceiving was a difference in the concentration of retendon itself and that it wasn't from the wine and it wasn't from some mixing error or something like that. So we really wanted a wine that, that would play nicely with the rotunda. Yeah. <laughs> and of course we chose to, do, to use a red because uh, both Moray and Shiraz, Syrah wine, uh, Syrah grapes are, are used to typically make red wines. Uh, were the uh, sniffers and the tasters, for lack of a better way of describing them, allowed to discuss the wines with each other or did they have to keep their opinions to themselves except for what they wrote down? When you do a sensory test like this, you have people in little isolated booths. So they're actually sitting at Penn State. There's a really nice sensory lab. And what it looks like is um, it's sort of a U-shaped desk. And in between each participant, there are these dividers. So they can't see the computers of the other individuals. Um, and they sit in there all by themselves. And they actually don't interact with anyone during the study. So there's a little door that you can slide their little wine samples through. Um, and so they never see the researcher, they never see the people that are serving their wine, and even though they're sort of sitting next to somebody else that might be doing the same test, they're also not allowed to interact with those individuals. So you really try to isolate people because, again, right, when you think back to our idea that maybe it smells different than it tastes, well, once I say, do you think this maybe tastes stronger than it smells, right? I'm, I'm already importing this bias to your perception. Right. Um, and that's something we really try as hard as we can to eliminate in a test like this. Now, when the uh, focus groups were started, and they, the focus group people were uh, different participants than the sniffers and the tasters, uh, what kind of questions were they asked about their perceptions? Yeah, so a focus group is a really different environment than a basic sensory test. Um, and so in this case, you know, we, have, we get a bunch of people together in a room. We sort of try to make it conversational and relaxed. Um, and so we gave them... In the focus groups, we gave them five different wines. One was actually a Noiré wine that was made at the Penn State Extension um, with grapes that were high in rotundone, so an actual wine that just naturally contains rotundone. And then we gave them the same two. We, we, we chose sort of a strong concentration, but not like overwhelming, of rotundone from the, from the previous studies that we had done mm -hmm. and we gave them one sample of the Carlo Rossi wine without it and then one sample with this 200 nanograms per liter so that it's it's perceptibly peppery but it's not overwhelming um, and then because a lot of Pennsylvania wine drinkers actually prefer a sweet wine we gave them the same two samples where we where we added sugar to the wines to make them more resemble the way the way that you would get a sweet wine in a store mm -hmm. and because we thought well when we looked at the rejection threshold, we saw that if people could detect this rotundone, most people in our population did not like it, which is interesting because as I, well, actually, I think that it's gone from the recording now, but um, in Australia, if you buy, if you look at the wine market there, a Shiraz or a Syrah that is really high in rotundone commands the highest market price um, as opposed to one that's low in rotundone. But so what we expected was that people might, prefer this compound, but then when we looked at our rejection thresholds, we saw that basically as soon as they could detect it, they started to dislike it. Um, there's a small 
a small number of people that seem to that seem to prefer this pepperiness, but in large part, our population did not like the rotunda. And so we said, well, it could be that they just don't like the pepperiness, but it could be that we're not giving them the kind of wine that they would normally drink. Most Many consumers in Pennsylvania wouldn't necessarily choose a dry red wine. Um, they would choose maybe a sweet white. And so we wanted to look at whether or not a sweet wine might might change the way that they perceived the rotundo in itself. Mm-hmm. So we looked at we looked at a dry set and a sweet set. And what we found is that pretty much across the board, even though there were a few people that enjoyed the pepperiness, our participants didn't <laughs> didn't yes. like the peppery wine, whether it was sweet or dry. They just yeah. that isn't that isn't a popular it's not gonna be a popular flavor in, in at least in mm-hmm. central Pennsylvania. What about this wine that is made at Penn State? So this one was actually part of a completely different study. So rotundone itself is present in these Noiré grapes, but you can modify it a little bit by the environment that the grapes grow in. So by based on moisture and shade, um, you can modify it by viticultural techniques. So this particular wine was made, they were looking at the effect of, of removing some of the leaves from the from the grapevines as the grapes were going, which changes the amount of sun that hits the grapes. And so they were looking at whether or not modifying the um, the presence of the leaves and, and at what point in the cycle the leaves are removed would change the amount of rotundone that was in the skin of the grapes. So rotundone is actually contained specifically in the skin and not in the fruit, um, which is why we typically find red wines that are peppery because when you make a white wine, even though you crush the grapes with the skin on them, you remove the skins right away and that's why the wine is white, right? The, the wine is red because you leave it sitting with the skins and then that allows the flavor of the skins to infuse into the wine. So they were looking at whether or not the way they manipulated the leaves on the grapevines would change the concentration of retendone in the skin of the grapes, which would then change the concentration in the wine. Well, it's time for another break and we will be right back in just a moment. This is MTSU on the record. NTSU's Jewish and Holocaust Studies minor offers undergraduate students a chance to study the culture and religion of the Jewish people and the Holocaust in an interdisciplinary program. Studies include history and culture, theology and philosophy, and the arts and social sciences. Courses tackle vital topics central to local and global awareness, including multiculturalism and the meanings of diversity, religious tolerance, and genocide. For the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. The mission of the June Anderson Center for Women and Non-Traditional Students is to provide education, advocacy, direct services, outreach, and programming for the MTSU campus and surrounding community on gender-related issues. The center also assists older students who are trying to balance work, college, and family. It also sponsors a monthly legal clinic, career brown bag series, book club, and a newsletter twice a year. For all of the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Dr. Jessica Gaby is our guest. She's an assistant professor of psychology, and we're talking about testing for the presence of rotundone in wines, whether you can sniff it or taste it, whether it makes any difference, and how you feel about the taste that it gives wine. Uh, The comments that the focus group people made when comparing peppery wines to personality types were really interesting. Somebody said that uh, it they compared it to a woman they knew who had absolutely no filters, no limits. Another compared it to someone they thought was overly aggressive. Talk about some of those a little bit. Those are very interesting human uh, perceptions. I actually had not done a ton of qualitative research before I went to Penn State. And so 
when I was working in the food science department there, I really got to see this very different side of how people do sensory research besides using a standard triangle test or a comparison test rate. We asked them to personify a peppery wine. As I mentioned, the people in our population didn't really like a peppery wine, so some of what we see in their in their responses is, is kind of negative, <laughs> right? So uh, you said a woman with no filter, but I, they also frequently compared them to sort of like a snooty professor type. At, at Penn State, we recruited just from the general population. A large number of our participants are university affiliated, but they're typically, they're not students at all. They're often staff or they're maybe spouses or friends of staff who know that there's this sensory testing facility that, that is a fun way to get a couple extra bucks. And they're not it, wine experts at all. None of them are wine experts. No, they're not wine experts at all. We actually uh, screened to make sure that we didn't get wine Right. Because again, in this focus group, you don't want someone to say, oh, well, this is like that $300 bottle of Shiraz I drank last week. Yeah. And then everyone's like, wait, is this a, is this a good thing? I didn't know it was a good thing. Based on what you found in the study, what kinds of additional research do you think that people could use at taking your study as a jumping off point and then venturing out into uh, different offshoots to uh, explore this area a little further? Well, so one of the really interesting things is I mentioned, I think that there are other compounds that we know of that, that some people can smell and some people can't. Some of those compounds, we've actually traced where it is in the in your genetic makeup that determines which receptors, right? So when we talk about what we call an anosmia, so an inability to smell a particular odor, um, we're interested in what genes are involved in the production of those receptors in the nose. And that involves a lot of genotyping of a lot of people. And so there's not that many compounds where the genetic source of the variants has been, has been isolated. There, there's a, an, an odor called guayacol that contributes like a smoky odor. It's kind of the main odorant in, in liquid smoke. Um, and the genetic basis for the perception of that odor has been really well characterized. So when we talk about an anosmia, one of the questions is, well, what is it that makes people unable to smell this odor? And can we track it to a specific gene? Um, and then another question, so far all of the odorants that we know of the genetic basis for perception, they all seem to lie on different genes. Um, but it might be that as we characterize more and more of these odors, that maybe if you can't smell rotundone, you also can't smell guayacol. And so it's not only interesting to know what the gene is that contributes to the production of the receptor, but it's also interesting to know um, whether or not that gene co-varies with other genes in the, in the genome. Certainly, it's interesting to think about um, how people in other parts of the country or in other countries might perceive this compound, right? So the two other studies looking at perception of rotundone, one of them was done in France and one of them was done in Australia. And as I mentioned, Australia already has a really um, positive perception of this peppery note. Um, in France, they also, they I believe that the population they use there also um, indicated that they they preferred a peppery flavor. Um, and so there seem to be these sort of regional variations in the way that people perceive this compound qualitatively, right? And so that's another direction you could go is to look, well, okay, people in central Pennsylvania where you normally drink a sweet white really don't like this, but what about people in California where they're creating more, you know, wines that sort of more closely mirror European wines? It's also interesting to look at this to reinforce uh, 
the understanding of how powerful our sense of smell is and the kind of impact it has on the way we think and the way we perceive things. We take it for granted because we breathe every day and we don't really think about it. It's just something that we do. The sense of smell has a really profound effect on the human psyche, doesn't it? The sense of smell is unique among the senses. It's unique both in the way that it's processed in the brain and also in the way that we attend to it, right? So we see all the time when our eyes are open, but we are actually largely paying attention to what's in our visual field. We also smell every time we breathe. And most of the time, we aren't really paying attention. Our, our sensor, our olfactory system adapts really quickly to environmental odors. So you can think about walking into someone's house and you think, oh, it smells like lavender in here. But after you've been in there for you know five or 10 minutes, you don't really smell the lavender anymore, right? It's because your, sense, your olfactory system is really wired to adapt very quickly. And essentially what's happening is olfaction is kind of monitoring the environment. And as long as everything maintains the status quo, you don't pay any attention to it. When something violates your expectations or when you're explicitly evaluating something, that's when you start paying attention to your sense of smell. But that's really not the way that most of our other senses work. And if you look in the brain, all of the other senses synapse first through the thalamus and then into the cortex. So um, there's this sort of sensory central processing area in the thalamus, but olfactory information synapses first into the areas of the brain that deal with attention and memory and then into the thalamus. So you see that we actually can can respond to an odor and build memories based on that odor almost outside of conscious awareness. My favorite odor example is the odor of violets in the United States. Violets are often part of of fine fragrance, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But in Latin America, violets are sometimes part of cleaning of like the Latin American equivalent of pine salt. Um, And in Europe, violets go into candy. So just based on where you grew up, the odor of violet may trigger these really vastly different reactions, right? That's totally amazing. Well, and actually, uh, those Glade air fresheners that that do those little puffs every 20 minutes or whatever, they're actually explicitly trying to override that natural tendency for sensory adaptation, right? That's why they keep puffing the odor Mm -hmm. into the air, because... They have it set to wait sort of just long enough for you to adapt, and then they give you like another dose of it to to really up your perception. Yeah, the marketing department rises again. (laughs) Dr. (laughs) Jessica Gaby, thank you for being with us. Once again, the study was published in August 2020 in uh, the journal Nutrients, which is a uh, free access, I believe it's Mm -hmm. called, uh, publication. Go to mdpi.org, I think it is. Google MDPI and you'll you'll go to it. And Jessica Gaby, thank you for being our guest today on MTSU on the Record. Thanks a lot. I enjoyed it. We'll be right back. Women in Science and Engineering, or WISE, helps college women prepare for and become involved in science-related careers. WISE nurtures women's interest in these fascinating and critical fields and provides mentoring and networking opportunities. The group's main goal is to assure women of their importance in all scientific and technical fields, and to promote equal opportunity and treatment of women in science. I'm Dr. Judith Iriarte-Gross, WISE Advisor. For all the latest MTSU information, go to mtsunews.com. The Experiential Learning Scholars Program at MTSU gives students a chance to go outside the classroom and obtain hands-on experience in their chosen fields of study. They'll have the opportunity to give something back to the community through service learning as they gain acceptance for graduate study. 
Students should be able to select EXL designated courses from major requirements and general studies requirements to complete the 16 to 18 hours of EXL coursework. For all of the latest MTSU news and information, go to mtsunews.com. Randy Weiler has the middle moment. Quest 2025, an ambitious set of new goals during the next five years. Associate Vice Provost Vincent Windrow and the Office of Student Success shares more. We recently received notification that we achieved historic retention rates with regard to our uh, freshman class and our transfer students. And on the heels of that, we just launched Quest 2025. This particular quest expands and integrates some very fundamental approaches to how we support faculty and and how that support becomes part of the classroom, part of the instruction, and part of the overall success of the institution. That's MTSU on the Record. I'm Jenna Logue. Thanks for listening. MTSU on the Record, a news and information program about Middle Tennessee State University, is produced by the university's Marketing and Communications Office, which is solely responsible for its content. Read more about MTSU at our website, mtsunews.com. Podcasts of this program are available at mtsunews.com and on iTunes.